Hello, and welcome to Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. I'm David Levy. In today's episode, Jose and Penny Maria are joined by author Warren Hoffman to talk about his new book, the second edition of The Great White Way, Race in the Broadway Musical, and in particular to look at his chapter on West Side Story through the lens of the current Broadway revival directed by Ivo von Hove. Enjoy! Warren, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on the second edition of The Great White Way. For our listeners who haven't read the first edition or the revised edition, can you tell us a little bit about what the book is? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, uh, Jose and Pen Maria. The Great White Way Race in the Broadway Musical looks at the history of Broadway musicals through the lens of, of race, um, but I think in ways that would surprise a lot of readers. Um, when people initially hear this title, or I ask people when I talk about the book uh, live at events, and I ask people, you know, when you hear these terms together, you know, what do you, what shows do you think about? And people always say things like South Pacific and Dream Girls and Flower Drum Song, and and all those shows are fine and, and, and great. Um, but when I tell them, I, I'm also going to talk about shows like Oklahoma and The Music Man and Forty Second Street people sometimes get a bit confused and they don't understand. They say, what do these shows have to do about race? And so the book is really about looking at race very broadly, including looking at white racial identity and how that has very much also shaped the history of the musical. So that talking about race um, is not just about talking about people of color, which is probably obvious and yet to many readers of people, it, it, it isn't always. So that's a lot what the book is about. And the new edition I'm really excited about is because it's really up to date. It uh, has a new chapter on the Book of Mormon and Hamilton, as well as a bunch of jukebox musicals that just opened. As I read the book and I had, be, I, I had been carrying it in my tote, every time that someone says something, you know, on the lines of, but there's this musical and I take your book out almost like a crazy Bible person. And I'm like, not according to this book. <laughs> and even, you know, to, to me, as a, as a person of color, as a Latino, you put into words and with actual facts and research things that I have known deep inside. And I, I was very curious to, to learn about what it's like for you when people of color come to you and tell you you're right about so many things here that I had never even thought about probably. It's been really moving. I've actually had a, a number of um, people who I didn't know write me emails after they finished the book. Um, including a number of uh, uh, actor, people of color, actors of color. There was an original cast member from a chorus line who wrote me and said, you nailed that chorus line chapter. Um, and so it's, it really is um, good uh, to, 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 hear that, to hear that feedback. But um, in some way, it's not really about validation for me. I'm really more excited when white folks read the book and actually begin to sort of think about Broadway musical, if not the world in general, in sort of a different light. But um, I'm glad it, I'm glad it's resonating with people from a variety of, of backgrounds. Yes, I have to jump in and, and agree. Just like Jose, um, reading your book, people would, you know, say, oh, that looks interesting. And I say, actually, it, it is. And I had a conversation or two with some white people, and it was... Um, it was a different way to kind of engage and right away get to some deep level conversations. And it, um, I just want to read very briefly this line that you have in the preface. You say, I foreground American life under Trump here because this book has always been about combating white supremacy, revealing it, explaining how it works, and offering some suggestions, at least as far as the Broadway musical is concerned. And so I think that's exactly it. People don't want to acknowledge that white supremacy exists. But when you have uh, shows that were created, like The Music Man, I mean, it's hard to ignore this fact, especially in the arts and culture community, community that's supposed to be so inclusive and so welcoming. So your book um, is not only you know, I guess refreshing as a black woman to read, but also a way to continue conversations even in public or even start them. Um, because I actually, when I, when you go to the theater, there are a lot of older white patrons. So kind of, you know, engaging with them in, in a new way um, is, is very mean, meaningful. So thank you for that. 
Thank, thanks for that feedback. I, 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 there are a couple of things there you said that really uh, make me happy to hear and, and really resonate. It's interesting. I'm, I'm going to be doing um, a talk hopefully in a few months um, with this uh, uh, racial working group, um, mainly with white folks. And the idea to do it with them came out of a conversation I heard when someone was saying, yeah, I, don't, I don't understand what, what race really has to do with me as a, as a white person. And yet I think using the musical as this way, this, this, this art form that, that se seems very benign as a way to sort of begin talking about how the entire world and society in which we live, race is built into it no matter who you are. And I think with that line you read about white supremacy, you know, a lot of people, particularly white people think that, oh, well, if I'm not running, if I'm not part of, you know, the neo-Nazis yelling hate speech, then the white supremacy has nothing to do with me. And yet taking a step back and seeing the deep ways in which I know I'm preaching, I know you know all this, I'm just saying this for the listeners out there and saying that understanding white supremacy as I talked about in the book as other theorists have talked about as how does it sort of filtrate through society in all different ways it's not just about rabid violence and, and and racial epithets it's it's about you know how people live their lives who gets jobs um, economic issues and the musical reflects all of that and so using the musical as a way to teach people about that is is really actually pretty exciting Yes, congratulations. The, the beauty and in many ways also the tragedy of the book is that it is relevant every single season. You know, it's not something that white supremacy is and something that we checked off the list and it's gone. And in fact, we're getting together because there's a new production of West Side Story at, which is one of the key chapters in, in the book. But before we talk about West Side Story, I was just, I've been dying to ask you this, but as I read the book, I kept wondering, Warren, do you still get to enjoy musicals now that you know <laughs> how perverse they are? Uh, it's a it's a great question. It's um, and a hard one to answer. I mean, it's a, in some ways it's over, even before the book. So I, I worked professionally in theater for a number of years. I was the literary manager. Uh, and dramaturg for Philadelphia Theater Company for a number of years when my job was to go out and see a lot of theater. I've, uh, I've been a theater critic myself. I've been a producer. I've been a, been a playwright. Um, and so whenever I see theater, I'm always sort of, it's sort of hard to turn off the critical side of that. Um, and yes, now, especially whenever I see a show, I, it's very hard for me not to sort of see it through this very particular racial lens, especially when we're dealing with the classic musical. I, I remember when just a few months ago, they announced the new revival of The Music Man. And, uh, you know, they started showing, here's who they cast and pictures. And just right away, the first thing you see is like, wow, that's a lot of white people in this cast. And, you know, we can have a whole conversation about that show. Maybe I'll come back in the fall after that show opens. We can talk about it. But, um, you know, I, I think with only a handful of exceptions, you know, there really isn't a reason to just sort of cast multiracially today, um, uh, uh, cross-racially. Um, and, and when you see productions like that are still coming up, it's like, wow, like where are the actors of color in it? Or why are they only in the chorus? Um, it's a problem. Yes, but I'm also glad that you address address that and confronted it um, head on, um, especially in the chapter chapter three about West Side Story and the Music Man. There's uh, in quotes the phrase "pure Americana" and kind of uh, the whole I idea that Amer Americans attending this show on Broadway really wanted to go back to this sort of idyllic time. And even though, you know, it's been 40, 50, 60 years, this is a, an America that people still want to see. And I think that's very much reflected in the time as we all can see what happened uh, with the presidential election and where our government is is now. I mean, the, the backlash that was, uh, you know, that occurred after uh, President Obama is really wreaking havoc um, on society as a whole, but has been very revealing 
in a white American desire to return to this pure Americano. A hundred percent. And look, I think we have to be honest that who, for the most part, uh, are theater-going audiences. They tend to be middle to upper-class uh, white folks who have uh, the amount of disposable income to spend on what is crazy high tickets. I mean, uh, it's... You know, it's 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 crazy how much a, a ticket can cost to a show, um, and so they're very much, I think. Uh, so with revivals are very much pitched to those audiences, and producers want to put butts in seats, and they're not done. They if they think that hey, here's who the audience who we're we're selling to, we probably want the cast on stage to look like our our audience. It's also why, and this is the new epilogue to the book, talks about why uh, movie uh, stage versions of movies. Uh, and uh, are so popular as well as jukebox musicals, particularly jukebox musicals of music of the uh, 50s and 60s. All of these things are typically uh, geared to baby boomers, same demographic, and all of this stuff, if you think about it, it's all about nostalgia. Looking back, um, and if that isn't the slogan of what Make America Great Again was, it, to me it was a very backwards but inherently racialized portrait of what America is. And musicals are part of that, that conversation. And yes, if you were to tell this to people who, who love theater deeply, they would probably, I, I mean, probably many people told you you were crazy, like none of those things were real. Because there's also something else in theater that's always struck me as very fascinating and very uh, scary, is that there's a culture of silence and anything that might damage the purity and the beauty and the joy of theater. So we don't talk about race. When the Me Too movement started, it didn't have any theater. No one was talking about it. We prefer to not talk about those things. And for me, the audience, you know, when I was reading the book, which is also such a great history of just theater in America, I kept wondering what it would have been like for someone like me, for instance, to be sitting with the white audiences during West Side Story, because they were not used to seeing people of color in, in the theater. You know, like I, I kept also thinking about Susan Laurie Parker's Venus, which is essentially about this, about how people of color were paraded and used for spectacle. And now in 2020, when still, you know, uh, attendance of non-white people isn't that great because theater isn't welcoming, I, I feel a little bit safer, but I, I just would love to hear you talk a little bit about, about how you think that the audience has changed also and what this means to the theater community when it comes to, you know, being real and stop this denial that none of these things are real. You know, I'm not sure I have, have a, a perfect answer. I mean, it's a, it's a really big question. It's a great question. You know, the, a, a non-musical show, though, I'm thinking about, and, and I wrote about this for, um, for Medium, uh, was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And this that show, Again, not a musical, but here's a show. It's very much about race, and you know, it's being celebrated as a, such an important drama. And I remember the night I went to see it, the entire audience was basically white. And if you if you read the book or seen the movie or, or particularly seen this new production or this play version, to me, it's a play that's about it's about making white people feel good about um, about race relations. The white people are the protagonists. It's it's focused on them, and it's another show where there uh, there's such a white vile racist in the show. Uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, uh, and 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 I could see the and whenever he would say his vile things, the white audience members around me got like, oh, I can't believe he said that. And then they left the theater, I think, feeling really good about themselves, like, well, we're not like that, and 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 therefore we just saw a really good liberal theater. And so I think it's that's that's the way I think that that audiences, white audiences, prefer to deal with racial issues. I don't think they want to really look hard at and see how they themselves might be complicit with with certain narratives that are out there. So that that's something that that, that sort of just comes to mind. Shall we dig into West Side Story then? Are we all ready? Yeah, sure. Um, I, that actually kind of makes me think about um, when you're when you note uh, Cheryl Crawford who was potentially one of the producers on, of West Side Story and how she really was begging the creators to kind of explore the how and why uh, d 
these two gangs were fighting and that no one wanted to talk about that that's not important it just is the way it is and i i think that's especially connected um to uh the audience members that we're talking about right now they don't want to acknowledge any part they may have had in this situation or their parents may have had in this situation they're just like this is the way it is and it's very unfortunate i think that may have provided um, another level of insight to the show making it much richer but you know people just wanted uh, a little a little less depth I guess this was already edgy enough at the time and so the creators weren't ready to go there would you agree or how do you feel about that yeah I, I think to some extent I, I would um, as I talk about in, in, in my chapter about West Side Story which also talks a little bit about the music man which came out the exact same year um, the the creation origins of the of West Side Story are are fascinating. I think they're fascinating. Um, there's a whole history that people don't know about. Uh, I'll mention just a little bit of it for for listeners who are who are who are tuning in. Um, so what what often just surprises people is that what we know as West Side Story is not what the original intention was going to be. Um, the original show was actually going to be called East Side Story. This is a real thing. And it was going to be about uh, Jews and Catholics, two gangs, a Jewish gang, a Catholic gang, fighting it out in the streets of New York around the time of Easter and Passover. Um, and different drafts of this version were written. Um, you can find them in the archives. I, I have some ex excerpts in this book. And the, the creators of the show just decided it just it wasn't really working. They, it, they felt it was it was dated. And it wasn't until Arthur Lawrence and Leonard Bernstein were uh, sitting at the pool of the Beverly Hills Hotel one day, and the headline is something like, you know, uh, Chicano mayhem in you know New York streets. There were there were I think riots or some there was some violence happening. That this light bulb goes off in Lawrence's head and says, well maybe maybe the gang violence should be about this. And and Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence start talking about it. Then they call. Uh, Jerome Robbins, because the show, I should say, had been in development for a number of years. They kept s starting and stopping, but they couldn't figure it out. And when they read this aspect of it, the this uh, Latino uh, angle to it, they got excited, musically and otherwise. Um, and it was very much of the day. Um, and so I know we're going to talk about the, the new production shortly, but but West Side Story 1957 is very, you know, all current. It's very much of the moment. Which is why, to me, it actually makes it a difficult show to revive, um, which is sort of also what makes this current production really interesting, but also sort of frustrating and challenging, at least at least to me. But uh, but to your point, Penny Maria, I, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, they didn't want to make it super sociological in, in their approach, the creators, that is. In, in some ways, you know, I think they pulled back and, and they're sort of using these you know it's it's shakespeare mixed with what was happening in new york and it's very um i don't want to say superficial but it's sort of you know almost used on this metaphoric symbolic level of like you know racial tension writ large rather than digging deep into what causes sort of some of these tensions to be uh, happening especially oh here's the last thing i'll say especially around the the jets what is what how do we understand the jets identity in 1957 you know a lot of people read this show and they say oh it's about you know a latino gang and a white gang fighting it out and yet if you read the script very carefully yes the jets are white but these are pretty much newly arrived still immigrants irish italians polish immigrants who only have recently been able to enter mainstream white identity themselves and and that's something that the show doesn't really elaborate on that i really tease out and talk more about in the book you write that in the uh the op you write in the libretto's opening text direction we are told that the sharks are puerto rican and the jets an apology of what is called quote-unquote american this made me think so much about uh, james baldwin's uh, the price of the ticket in which he talks about how white folks you know had to pay the price of living behind their culture and their practices and everything in order to become caucasian and one of the things that West Side Story has always been known for, not only in terms of the skin color, but even in the in terms of what the gangs were, you know, like we think of purple and red and we think of the sharks. 
and then we think of more like beige and like blue for the <laughs> for the jets. And then yeah, and in the Evo and in the Evo Van Hover version, he does away with the color line completely. And for some background, this production opened officially last month. It had been in previews for quite some time. And without taking into account all the video and all the controversial, you know, updates they did to the libretto by removing songs and all of that, one of the things that I found most peculiar and most fascinating, and one of the things that I haven't really seen discussed by critics and journalists is that Ivo van Hove did away with the color line. Now, the Jets and the Sharks are both multicultural, multi-ethnic. We have, you know, black Jets and we have black Sharks. We have lighter skin Jets and Sharks. It's like a whole combination. It's the, you know, it, obviously I, I'm thinking about the, the melting pot figure. And I, I let's start talking about, about that, how, how, how did you feel about not having, because I feel that historically that, that has made it very easy for people to, again, you know, like when they go to see To Kill a Mockingbird, like you know who the bad guys and who the good guys are. But when the Jets and the Sharks look like each other, what does that do to, to us when we're seeing West Side Story, which we think we already know so well? Well, Jose, um, just really quickly, um, I don't know, maybe I was seated too far to the back of the house. But to me, I noticed, yes, there are definitely black, um, highly melanated Jets, the American gang. However, for the Sharks, I didn't see that so much. And it really, like, quite confused me. Even though we have Maria, who is a mixed Latina girl, um, I didn't see that so much for the men. So that was a bit perplexing to me. Because as we all know, um, slaves were brought to the new world as a whole. Yeah, I don't know. Can I'm gonna try to pull up some production photos. I thought that was very odd. When there was a party scene, yes, you can see definitely people of varying skin, various skin tones on both sides of the fence. Uh, so I actually got to see, uh, lucky, the, the very last performance of West Side Story before they closed the Broadway theater. So I, was, I feel lucky to have gotten in. And um, so it's only been a couple days now since I'm still sort of processing that experience of watching the show and I'm still thinking about it. But Jose, to your, your, your point about um, color, costuming, skin color, um, it definitely, I, especially the opening scene where everybody was pretty much dressed alike I thought was really interesting to, because to your point, it was sort of saying, wow, is it, is it trying to make the case that we aren't really different? What is it that's making these guys different? So I was thinking about that. And yet when we get, and I'm thinking particularly to the dance scene, you know, when they do mambo and all that, um, the lighting is very particular to separate them out um, with the sharks and sort of, again, like the movie, the sort of, reds and hot purples and I think the jets went a cooler blue um, and if you look slightly carefully at the sharks um, outfits they were also there were well there were a lot of sequins I guess the sharks like sequins uh, and, and and some hints of red that the jets didn't get so it wasn't as um, over the top as the movie was and sort of like those day glow colors that even Arthur Lawrence the book writer said the movie he hated but yeah it's it's playing with that but you know Here's a moment where I think I was sort of not sure that this, that uh, Von Ho's vision was working. It, there's a scene with, I think it's Officer Schrank, who it's later in the, the, the show, and he's saying, he's talking to the Jets, and, and he's saying basically like, you know, all of you guys are immigrants, and he's saying, you know, and I think he's even using the term like, you know, wops and spicks. Um, and it's interesting thinking about how there are black jets that he's talking to and trying to figure out like how do they fit in this you know basically how are we taking a 1957 script and putting it with this 2020 vision there are these parts of which at least for me the show just butts heads with itself and it doesn't fully work and that's to your point jose i i was i remember that the person that i was sitting next to during the during the the rumble scene, asked me who are the jets and who are the sharks, and I said I have I have no idea, <laughs> and 
you know that the way that so I I think I'm in the I don't I don't think I've I've heard many people say this, but I love this production so much because as an immigrant and as a Latino immigrant, I I I think that the media has made it so easy for us to to divide that in that way that I was so excited, you know, because uh, I kept thinking, for instance, and obviously like uh, so there are moments when Ivo Van Hove's like visuals are very overwrought, like he starts using like imagery from like the border wall and from Hurricane Maria and kinds of things that you're like, okay, maybe I don't need this this moment. But it's so interesting to see, for instance, that in many instances as a Latino, some of the places where I've faced the most uh, xenophobia and racism, racism are in Latino spaces. And I couldn't help but think, for instance, about Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. And what I liked about this production was it reminded us that there may be immigrants who once they sold, you know, they pay the price of the ticket, like James Baldwin said, they also joined like the white, you know, supremacy and, and, mm -hmm. and the white power. And with the language, what I thought was, I took it as satire, because what is more outdated and more racist and more in need of an update than the police force? And for mm -hmm. Lieutenant Shrank to be using these terms from the 1950s makes total sense because the police, especially in New York, seem to be stuck in the the early 20th century, so with the racist practices. And someone said to me uh, something that I'm never going to forget. And they said, you know, because people were asking, like, how is it possible that a that a black officer or that a Latino officer is arresting, uh, you know, youth of color? And someone said to me, they're not racist. The uniform is racist. So whoever wears the uniform is carrying that history of racism and, and, and evil that the police force uses. So I, I actually, I don't know, I, I was I was very uh, scared and very uh, excited to see that it's challenging the ways in which we think of the police and which we think of each other also. It was very yeah. triggering for me. Um, sorry, just, just quickly, Jose, um, when you uh, are talking about these scenes, especially uh, when the jets are are singing, and you see a stage, and you have jets of various skin tones, but on screen projected are all of these images. Um, I'm going to say 95% of Black people in jail in the system being held down. It, it uh, by police officers. It felt uh, very. Um, disarming to experience this in a theater full of, of white people. And I was just wondering about the decision to include the images that they did. Were they trying to, the creators were, or recreators, were they trying to say that um, black people are targeted more predominantly, even though, you know, both uh, races in this instance are, are offenders? Um, or did they just search images of, you know, people in jail and all they found were black images? I mean, either way, I think it's very telling of today's society, of, of this country's history, actually. It's interesting, though, that I think now that you're saying this, I, I feel like it's sometimes I was watching two different shows on stage. There was a visual show and then the oral show like what they were saying and so what you were just describing this visual show that was um let's say a focus on uh, black lives matter and, and police brutality and then uh jose the the visuals that you were mentioning of the wall so again not a wall with puerto rico a wall with obviously mexico and so there i think you know he, he's trying obviously to make these very big statements about similarities between what's happening today obviously with the 50s and yet the fact that they couldn't fully update the script i guess frustrated me because i feel like that's why i felt like i was at times maybe watching two shows and i and i like i should also just state for the record i actually also really like this production i like that it was like trying things and it was fresh and exciting the last production of west side story i saw in new york the one that they made that they allowed or enabled the sharks to also speak in Spanish, um, still felt really dated to me. And this show didn't really, it felt exciting and vibrant in a way that, that, uh, that was great. Um, 
But at the same time, I think it still kept feeling pulled back into some of these 1950s things that I almost wish, I don't know how this would happen, but that I just, I don't know, wanted them, if they're going to have these images, to directly, I don't know, address what's happening today. I don't know, that, that's just what I was feeling. I wonder if we're going to have to wait for everyone involved in the original production to die before they can end. I don't you know. I don't <laughs> wish... I don't wish death on anyone, especially not the one person that's still alive from back then that we need. <laughs> uh, but I wonder if that's the case, you know, if we're if we're just waiting for that. But in 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 the great white way, you make this incredible, especially in the first in the first chapter where you talk about showboat. You go into great depth about the way in which race is performative and how people tend to to perform race and the American number is essentially about that, where the women are aspiring to become white, basically, as the men are telling them, we have Puerto Rico, and we have our culture, and we have our island. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit, Warren, about uh, race as performance and America, specifically the number America, not the country. <laughs> uh, race as performance, wow, that's like the biggest topic ever. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's something else where we began our conversation where I really try to get white people to understand that, that, that all of us are performing of various types of identities all the time, uh, racial, gender. Um, sometimes we can choose, sometimes we can't choose. Um, often uh, people of color, again, are, 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 are forced into very particular roles, much more so than, than white folks. Actually, look, in many ways, that's a lot of what West Side Story is about, that these, um, the Jets, as these newly white yet former um, ethnic immigrants can perform their whiteness and become part of the white mainstream in ways that the, the sharks um, can't. And um, what's, oh, I'm just, I have to look it up because I, I'm, I'm the worst with lyrics. But they're using sort of a version of the, of the movie version of, of uh, America here in this stage production, um, and I want to get the, I want to get this line right. Um, right, they say life can be bright in America if you can fight in America. Life is all right in America if you're all white in America. Um, and so in that case, there's Sondheim. I mean, that's actually very, very explicit about like knowledgeable about saying like, yeah, there is cultural capital in being white in this country. Um, and, and, and something that the, that the, the shark women are, are to some extent aspiring to. Oh, there's total silence. I thought you were going to say um, something. I, 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 yeah, no, I was just looking at that page. Um, because, you, uh, you also mentioned that there was a letter in, in which, uh, Bernstein wrote to Robbins that they were looking for something to be, um, kind of pastoral. Uh, about this this song and it seems like it went from what could have potentially been uh, people celebrating their native land to kind of shifting it to the white gaze to focus solely um, with, an, with a, a white lens about how great America is. Um, so I was just uh, taking a look back at that because I thought that was uh, very important to know. Uh, I also love that you were able to get your hands on a lot of these original lyrics. And going back to uh, 101, it's weird how, well, I guess not weird, but it's very telling how the turf is, is ours, uh, potential opening song. Uh, is, it seems like it's kind of text straight from today's bill. This, this turf is ours, drew a big white line with a keep out sign, and they crossed it. I mean, it, it's it's just kind of, I don't know, it digs right at your soul. Um, and it, it's almost like, it, it, it's like in the original song, they were taking a peek, at maybe, at like white nationalists in a mm. private meeting, but then the song was rewritten and they wound up when you're a jet 
to make it appear how white nationalists are in public. It's like, no, you know, we just, we're just a brotherhood. We're just trying to support each other. And so I was like, hmm, very interesting. I feel like uh, more people should definitely be aware, aware of this. So I appreciate you including uh, the original text. Yeah, th those original songs uh, in the book, uh, this Jeff is ours and mix, you know, look there, I, obviously I <laughs> wasn't there when they were working on them. Um, and we only know so much about uh, how they came and went. I mean, what, what Sondheim and I think other historians say about these uh, early songs was that, you know, they felt that they, they didn't set the right tone. I mean, basically these are the opening songs of, I mean, of the show and for any musical, you know, how you set how you set that opening tone for the first song is, is so key. Um, but I think, uh, Penn and Maria, you, you really nailed it with, with what I think the Jet song is doing. It seems like, oh yeah, we're just like a gang. To me, that song is very much about, about race. Um, it's what ties them together. Um, and I say, you know, as, a, as an exercise, it wouldn't make for great lyrics, um, but like if you take out the word, you know, when you're a Jet, and then you substitute, you know, the word white, when you're white, you're white all the way. I mean, it's like the, it, it turns into a song that you could see white nationalists chanting at at a rally. And and it's just that it's just a change of one word. And and I think that helps people to re, to see things in a different way. But it's like America song and tomorrow belongs to me from Cabaret are in like direct conversation. That's mm. what I've always felt. And I think mm -hmm. if we keep if we keep digging like further and further and further, for instance, when when in America, the, the sharks about the island Manhattan, well, not even the shots belong in the island Manhattan. Like it was Native Americans who were there first, and West Side Story, <laughs> West Side Story does uh, without mentioning Native Americans. And when in the book you discuss Oklahoma and um, and you get your gun, you go into the erasure of Native Americans. And I'm curious if during your when you were doing your research for West Side Story that the idea of Native Americans or any hint at you know, Native American presence exists, or was that just something that they also completely did with that? I didn't see anything in the archives, and my my gut tells me. I mean, if you if if you if you think about it, they're already dealing with this really sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of black and white issue of uh, uh, around around race, um, even though it's not in all senses of the word not black or white. Um, <laughs> you know, and and the the question around Native Americans um, uh, complicates things. I mean, as it should, but the point is like, a mu musicals, I think some musicals like West Side Story, they, they want to be deep and thought provoking and, and, and serious um, to a point, to a point. You know, they're not academic papers. They still need to be entertainment. Um, so Cheryl Crawford's original comments, as you noted, Penny Maria, were sort of thrown out, out of the window about like, why aren't you talking about this? Um, but, but yeah, uh, the, the authors didn't, in anything I found, didn't talk about that. I just want to say one quick thing, but to this point about turf, you know, I, I just want to mention something very quick about the choreography of this show. Um, I, I liked, I did like the choreography in terms of, like, it was exciting to watch, um, but if you've seen a production of West Side Story or even the movie with Robin's original choreography, and you think of that iconic move, it's on the logo of the original West Side Story, with one hand up and a leg up, and they're, they're dancing down the street. And whenever I look at that, to me, that is the epitome of saying, this is mine, right? It's like they want to take in this space, this turf with their bodies. And that to me is when I look at Jerome Robbins' original choreography for the Jets, um, and to some extent the Sharks, they're doing. And unfortunately, the, the choreography, choreography in this show didn't do that. They were dancing. It was interesting, but it wasn't... It wasn't sort of telling that sort of, I think, racialized story in the same way, in the same sort of corporeal, physical way. When, when you point out at the very beginning of the book that musicals are, you know, the most American thing that one can think of, like, you know, I think musicals are as, as American as apple pie, as they say sometimes. And I, and I don't even know if apple pie is completely American. But we think of musicals and we think of white culture and we think about American culture. And now that we're seeing all this musical being revised and giving path to the revisal, as you point out, what what are some you know in, in many ways I I don't even, I can't even believe that I'm saying this, but in many ways I kind of feel for all this like super old 
old-fashioned, crusty white people who in many ways feel like their, their culture is being erased because they're, these are things that they grew up with and that they, that they have known and they have cherished for so long. And even if America itself erased so many other cultures to become America, by now having to see, you know, something like West Side Story or Oklahoma with a, a, a multicultural cast, these people feel like their culture is being erased. And, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I find it extremely, extremely fascinating. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I guess oh, I don't no, feel too, too, too sad. For yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. Look, I think it was a, a long time ago when I was really just first, I'm talking like 20 years ago, when I was really just first trying to, learning about musicals. Uh, and I love it as a, like, just as a fan. And there was a part of me that was maybe a bit, um purist in my sense like oh i want to experience the original form of this show and i don't know the more i do it the more I, you know I, just some of these shows first of all, they just don't work in the same way anymore there's a reason why certain shows can only be revived at places like encores um because they really the, the books just don't work on stage anymore um i you know i i think there's this question of you know I, I like, look, on one hand, I think certain shows like Showboat, they're not the same as um, The Birth of a Nation. I think we need to sort of say, like, what, there are different levels here of... Of white supremacy and certain things like we should never put on stage again or view again. It's, like, terrible. But other shows, I think we have to sort of figure out, like, are there politics, if not maybe, um, maybe outwardly racist do they just not like really just feel good anymore and then we have to sort of like one should we even do these shows or i think some of this work that is being done by you know which books are being rewritten for for musicals um to some extent is okay i think it's been handled better by some creative teams than others um and it is this tough question of how do we how do we preserve a history Forget whether or not we're going to offend crusty old white people in their, their history. Just how, how, do we, how do we deal with history itself, right? And, you know, I would, ask, I would ask these same questions about literature, about movies. To what extent do we want to start rewriting books or movies from the past to make, uh, to make them uh, fit into our contemporary sensibilities? Um, and it's interesting that we somehow, I think because people think that musicals are this fluffy thing that, well, they don't really matter. Sure, we can rewrite them just to, you know, contemporize them or, or whatever. And, and there is some truth to that, but I also get a little bit, I do get a little bit hesitant, not because I think we're going to offend white people, but because I get a little bit nervous about how we deal with like cultural legacies and histories and, and how we want to like look at the, like, can we hold on to the past in a smart way and grapple with all of its messy complexities? Yes, I mean, that's, uh, that's so important and something that we need to ask, not only in the arts world, but I mean, <laughs> every industry and every human yeah. uh, should be asking themselves that it's them, themselves this question, especially in this country. Um, I don't know, and to speak to contemporary sensibilities, I don't know, like, it's just, it's so frustrating because you also highlight appropriation especially when you're talking about uh, the Music Man and how they had the nerve to put on Native American regalia. And as you said, like, inexplicably, um, I mean, this is something that continues to happen. Not only do people, uh, and mostly white people, kind of fetishize other cultures, but also while simultaneously while holding cultures down they also want to kind of take sometimes some of the best parts of those cultures and that's something that we have been seeing forever and still see see today uh do you have any comments about that i mean it's to some extent it's it's a little bit of the history of the american musical itself in that even though Jose, you were saying it is like it is this all-American art form. What it's become, and I think really once Rodgers and Hammerstein did Oklahoma, and and the musical enters its golden age, that format of it, this very tightly integrated book and music and dance form, become what we know to feel today is this all-American American musical form. But its roots are in African American traditions uh, of dance, 
in uh, in ethnic humor. Even even the negative stuff has has a racialized side to it. Um, it's obviously an opera hall, excuse me, opera music hall traditions, vaudeville. It's drawing on a lot of different traditions, many of which have racial and ethnic histories to them, and therefore, yes, are appropriating them um, often uh, and doing so in a way that uh, made certain artistic traditions, for lack of a better word, palatable to white audiences, to mainstream white audiences. I mean, a lot of other, I don't talk too much about this in the book, but a lot of people have talked about the history of tap dancing, I mean, which has a very specific um, African-American cultural history. And then when you see Shirley Temple and Fred Astaire doing tap dancing, it's this very sort of flattened out, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it's very, it's, it's very, it's a very different style of tap dancing than when, say, Savian Glover is doing tap dancing, um, who was, I think, going back to uh, uh, a different cultural tradition. And, and, and so those sorts of roots um, are very much in the musical form. Yeah, I had that same thought when Jose uh, mentioned the American musical form. I was like, it, it, my mind went to the same exact place about how the music evolved from popular uh music you were very right about that i'm always horrified because i grew up loving classic hollywood movies and i'm always horrified as an adult uh, that i've come up with something called the blackface challenge where i'm trying to find a single classic hollywood legend who didn't do blackface and it is horrifying because they all did it even my beloved judy garland but anyway I, I wonder, I wonder, did, did either of you get to see Soft Power when it ran at the public? I did, yeah. Okay, so I, I, I wonder, Warren, in many ways, if the future of the musical, especially the racist, xenophobic uh, musicals, is something like Soft Power, where David Henry Huang and Janine Tesori grab the concept and the structure of The King and I to tell the story from a, a Chinese, from an Asian perspective. And, you know, they're still paying, because like, I mean, it's, it's, I love The King and I, and The Kill Your Hat expression was <laughs> so beautiful. But, you know, you're sitting there, you're cringing, like, why, why is this white lady telling all these people how to, how to be? <laughs> and, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about, because soft power to me, not only was it an extraordinary musical on its own with the, the lyrics and, and book and the music that David Henry Huang and Denise Story uh, created, but also it was, criticism. It was a critique of the Rodgers and Hammerstein machine. And I wonder if you have any thoughts if the future maybe of the musical and a way for us to be able to preserve things that are, you know, good but racist is to have other artists take on them and, and you know, point out what's good about them, but also why they're so damaging. Yeah. Um, I mean, just in terms of quickly, in terms of soft power, um, I agree with you. I love the way it turned the king and I on its head and and basically refocused who the protagonist was and looking at uh, uh, colonialism through uh, an Asian American lens. I thought that was so, so smart. And I really like that. So, yeah, I think, look, like most things in the world, the musical form, it's a form. It's a it's a, an agnostic form. You can do whatever with it as you please. And so if more creators of color, or not even necessarily creators of color, but anyone who wants to sort of say something that turns it on its head, should, can and should do so. But it's interesting, as a counterpoint, and this is actually a lot of what I talk about in my new chapter about the, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon uses the Rogers and Hammerstein classic form of the musical to, to yes, to parody and, and make satire of these uh, white missionaries going to Uganda to uh, help uh, these, these villagers. But at the end of the day, it's not really disturbing what the musical is doing. It very much holds on to the traditional white form of musical comedy. And so for everyone who says, oh, you know, it's, it's such a Book of Mormon is really like turning things on its head. It, it, it really isn't. Um, it's an, another show very much told from the white point of view and it might be poking fun at white people to some extent, but at the end of the show, that vision is undisturbed. Speaking of the white point of view, um, I have a question. Hopefully it's, you know, not too, too deep, but I'm just very curious. 
um, when you're closing this chapter about West Side Story and talking about racial tolerance, I'm just curious about this line that says, on a surface level, the show's themes predate the famous plea for racial tolerance made in the late 20th century by Rodney King. Can we all get along? Why did you choose uh, to reference uh, Rodney King um, as opposed to some of the other shows around that time? I know you mentioned Lorraine Hansberry, The Raisin of the Sun. There was also uh, Douglas Turner Ward's Day of Absence, which is a very interesting look um, about, you know, the what would happen if there were only, um, if, if Black people weren't in this country at all to to say we all you know can work together and you know this has been a, a theme or a question in society since blacks were first brought to this this part of the world even through through slavery through reconstruction so i'm curious why the rodney king statement uh or line was so important to you uh it's a good question i'm i'll be honest with you i'm, I'm not sure i have a, a great answer um you know, sometimes uh, it's that that line to me. Um, uh, it it became so iconic at that moment, and I think to some extent still resonates or is brought up in society. Um, uh, you're right; it doesn't have to do anything really with the 1950s. I'm sure I could, if to, to, it's a good point. I probably could have thought about something that was happening closer um, uh, uh, to that time. I guess it was just something about that line that when I was doing the research and sort of both what they were saying explicitly, but also reading through the lines, there was something in, why should I talk about this? Um, Leonard Bernstein in his marked up edition of Romeo and Juliet writes, um, and I think he says it, 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 the show should be an out and out plea for racial tolerance. I think that's the line that, that I, that I quote that he uses. And it was that sort of, idea that that the Rodney King line just sort of connected to in my head but it, it wasn't I wasn't trying necessarily to make a temporal connection for any particular reason otherwise okay okay and speaking about the the history of, of black people since they were brought to America I love that in in the in the new edition you add uh you talk about Hamilton, and one of my major problems with Hamilton was precisely what you put out in your book, that it's kind of a musical that seems to happen and seems to exist in a world without slavery. And I remember when I went see it, and I was like, I was so angry that we had all these brown and black bodies, you know, portraying this white people who were terrible people and who all owned slaves. And I'm like, I, I, I kind of, you know, you know, this makes me very unpopular in theater circles because that's my biggest issue with Hamilton. I don't like that show because of that. Like I left and I was thinking, sure, the music is fantastic and I'm probably going to be singing it until the day that I die. But in many ways, I kind of feel like it's like To Kill a Mockingbird, except that we have black and brown body bodies at the service of the white audience making them feel better about their slave owner ancestors and their slave owner, you know, the fathers of the nation. And I, I, I love that you said that, and this isn't going anywhere, just to say that thank you for putting what I thought in, on paper. No, I, I'm glad. Uh, I also should say I am not the first person in, uh, Hamilton's gotten a lot of theatrical uh, crit criticism and coverage uh, by academics in the last few years. Um, there's actually a great new whole um, critical edition of, of essays around the musical Hamilton um, that I, uh, I highly recommend also out by Rutgers University Press um, for people who want to read more about um, about that that musical. But I think to tie, what ties into what you're saying, Jose, is the is the other thing about Hamilton, which just doesn't also work for me, which is the whole immigrant, if you work hard narrative, you will succeed. And it's it's this really interesting thing that um, that I talk more about the book where look, I think Manuel Miranda is just like, he's brilliant. He, he really is. I mean, like, he's just such in so many different uh, fronts. But he's sort of the exception to the rule. And well, here's someone who he is a person of color who has risen to like the way top of like, not just like the theater world, but so many different worlds. And he, it's sort of, if we sort of uh, purposely conflate him 
and Hamilton, and let's face it, he played the original in the original production of that character. It sort of says, well, if you work hard enough, like Hamilton did, like I, Lin Manuel Miranda did, then anybody can can achieve in America. Um, and it's one reason why both Democrats and Republicans who went to see this show, again, conservative Republicans were like, yeah, this is a great show. It says if you work hard in America, you can achieve it without paying it any attention to all of the difficulties and, and structural racism and all those things that 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 make um, true achievement uh, uh, possible. So that to me is very much tied to the absence, that narrative, that explicit discussion is tied to the absence of any discussion around slavery, which is, you know, so a lot is to sort of, I guess, use the pun, I'll use it, is, is does whitewash history. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, very interesting because it goes back to your question about race versus cultural identity. And it's almost saying, no matter where you come from, if you have white skin, you'll be able to get ahead. You're more easily accepted. And also kind of makes me think about Jeremy O. Harris's slave play in which you have one of the white therapists who reveals, oh, actually I'm Hispanic. And you're like, oh, I wouldn't know. You know, one wouldn't know that unless she speaks with her accent. So it's almost, uh, you know, it goes back to your point about the jets. Who can be a jet? What is white? Um, as long as your skin is light enough, uh, you'll be accepted. And I think that that can even be said definitely of, of black people. You know, when you look at it, back at who's been accepted into society, it's always the fairer skin. And I actually was just watching um, They've Gotta Have It or they got they've got to have us on Netflix and just talking about that whole course of history um is so very interesting the lighter the skin the easier um it will be for you to get to be accepted in society and that's unfortunately still something that we face uh today Warren the great white race obviously an incredible resource for everyone who loves theater uh, if they go to theater and if they get to theater, because in the in the new edition, you also add about multicultural casting and colorblind casting and everything that people are trying to do on stage to to fix the problem of white supremacy. But I want to I want to I want to finish by asking something that uh, that so I, I always find very very curious, and it's like I grew up outside the state, so my first um, my first interaction and my first encounter with musicals was movies, and movies keep you know, musicals alive in many ways. Like people know about musicals because there's movie versions. But if we think about the movie versions of musicals, even though we're seeing multicultural and multi-ethnic casting on stage, the movies are still very white. And we think about Chicago, for instance, where the two leads are white women, even though Chicago on Broadway is one of the shows that's been known for having the, you know, the most multi-ethnic and multicultural casting. We think about Into the Woods, where everyone was white, basically. Mm. And every every mm. movie musical keeps perpetuating this, the music man, Americana, you know, white for every role kind of thing. Even something like Cats, you know, it had a multi-ethnic cast, but they were covered in CGI fur. So people can't, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> You don't know, you don't know, yeah, you don't know, like, you, they might as well just, like, cast a bunch of white people. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on some resources that our listeners, uh, not in the States, and people who only get to see movie musicals, can use, besides your book, obviously, uh, to, to, to question and to challenge the notions of race that America is still exporting. Wow, there's, there's so many things you could say about that. Um... I mean, look, more and more live productions are being recorded professionally, um, which can be ex sometimes even uh, uh, accessed for free on, on places like uh, YouTube, uh, or even for not too, too much money. Um, on There's like new services, I think it's like uh, Broadway HD um, is, is one of them where you can sort of see things. Um, not that everything on there obviously is a multicultural treasure trove by any means. It's still a lot of like um, uh, white productions of 42nd Street. But, uh, you know, I think part of the challenge is, and, well, two things I want to say here. One of the challenges is, for the most part, film has tended to be a realistic medium, whereas 
the state has tended to be, with the exception of kitchen sink drama, a more um, fluid, uh, imaginative medium for the most part. There are a lot of obviously exceptions about this. Um, but my point being that, you know, on film, I think we, we tend to expect that, okay, if a certain story takes place in a certain, let's say, early decade of the 20th century, um, then we're going to typically expect certain roles to be played by certain uh, actors of certain racial backgrounds. To some extent, that does cross over into theater as well. And yet, I think what we're seeing, and happily more so now, is that we're willing to sort of embrace the inherent performativity and imagination and theatricality that is theater and say, you know what, we can actually be more playful and loose about who plays what roles. Uh, where, I, where I get really frustrated are the shows, you mentioned a good one, Into the Woods, or to me a show that sticks out, a show like Wicked. Mm -hmm. um, things that definitely don't take place in our reality. There's no reason why those shows, by, that's, the, that's like a baseline for me, like why those shows, like why haven't we had a really um, a black Glinda yet? There's been one actress who was an understudy went on, I don't know how many times. It took, I think, something like 15 years into the run for that to happen. But this takes, it takes place in Oz. Why does Glinda have to be blonde and, you know, white? Um, but happily, we're seeing in a show like Frozen that the creators are, are really saying, you know what? We can have, we can cast multiculturally, including the leads. Um, and that's, that's really exciting. So I, I think uh, this is sort of a roundabout way of <laughs> saying I don't have a great answer where else people can look. It's sort of the, on the, the, the shoulders of producers to say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to sort of think much more broadly than we have been about who can play certain roles. Yeah, I think that's very important. And I'm so happy uh, that you address that especially in these kind of allegorical shows. Like there's so much room for inclusivity that we keep talking about. Let's make it a reality. Um, as we wrap up, I just wonder if you have any more hopes for the American theater as a very culturally aware white man <laughs> that you'd like to share. You know, uh, part of it is that I think, look, if we want to see change in, in, in American theater, it has to come from different places. Look, as I think I mentioned earlier, I've served as a producer, I've served as a creator, I've served as an, I'm an audience member. Um, it has to come from all those different areas. Producers have to be willing to produce more work by, by creators of color and cast uh, actors of color in, in, in theater. But I think another area is that white audiences also need to, and I know sometimes they have limited dollars as well, have to be willing to not to like uh, support shows and, and, and theatrical work that um, features non-white creators. You know, do you really need to see Phantom of the Opera again or, or, or Cats or any of that other stuff? I mean, there there are a lot of, you know, you know, important shows like Soft Power and Carolina Change that feature actors of color um, and creators of color that that people should be going to see. So I think part of it is like, you know, we, we, we have to be the change. I know that sort of sounds really cliche, but we have to like, we have power to sort of say, this is what we want to see. And every time a producer says, well, I'm just going to give you another 1980s movie musical on stage with more white people. Like, I actually don't see that stuff anymore. It not only does I, I typically bores me, but that's not what I want theater to be. Very well said. Very well said. Mm. And thank you so much for joining us, Warren. How can people find your book, which I also want to say made me so angry, but also so elated that it's the fastest book that I've read <laughs> in years. So thank you for that. <laughs> Oh, those are the kindest words. Thank you, Jose. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, both of you, for, for having me on. This is actually, this, is, what a, this has been a really great discussion. Uh, well, people can buy the book uh, uh, places like Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, uh, if you're at an independent bookstore, they can order it for you. You can also buy it directly from uh, Rutgers University Press, uh, including, I think, for, with free shipping. Um, so uh, it's, you can buy it for Kindle. It's, it's available on all platforms. It's very affordable. Um, and yeah, I hope people uh, check it out.
Do you know by any chance if they also have a study guide? Because this book should be taught everywhere. Uh, I know, I know it is taught in, in different classrooms. That that was one reason. Uh, it was, you know, it was really special to, to be able to do a second edition, not uh, not just to update it, but um, the first edition sold really well, and and it was bought not just for use in classrooms, but a lot of theater fans um uh, bought it. And uh, it, again, it was it, it really tickled me when people like would come up to me and say like. This made me think about the American musical in all new ways. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. So uh, there isn't a study guide per se, but um, I think one thing I'm, all, I'm personally proud of is that it's, I think it's, I hope you would agree, it's a very readable book. It really is meant for um, for theater lover, lovers. It's not meant, it's not written in a, a very um, uh, overly scholarly way. Um, and that was very much on purpose because I want anybody who just like loves musicals and wants to learn more that can pick this book up and say, wow, that's really interesting. Thank you so much. I, I think you aced it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you both for having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. As you could probably tell, this was the first episode where we were all in different spaces thanks to social distancing. And the audio was a little rough, so thanks for bearing with us. We learned a lot. We're looking forward to doing more episodes this way as long as we have to. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximu. You can also find Warren on Twitter at underscore Warren Hoffman. For links to buy his book and learn more about him, check out our show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. We're even on Spotify now. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximuisms on them. You can find them all in the store at Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality, uh, which you can tell we need now more than ever. Thanks again for tuning in. See you again soon.